Koinonia, Christian fellowship, communion with God and with fellow Christians. This is Koinonia. This is community. I am Tom Brown, and your host today, Mark Buckley. Welcome to Koinonia. This is Mark Buckley, and I'm glad to be with you on this special day. With me in the studio is General John Goodman. Uh, General Goodman has served the United States faithfully for many, many years. We're going to look into his life. He was also a football star at ASU, so we're going to get his background. And then we're going to talk about the military, the, the life of the military, the sacrifices that are made by those in the armed forces, and uh, and what the current condition of our, our nation is and the challenges we face around the world. General Goodman, thank you very much for being my guest today. I'm honored to be here. Thanks. Well, let's, let's start with your history. Where'd you grow up, and uh, how did you eventually decide you wanted to go into the military? I was uh, born and raised in Sacramento, California. My dad, my all my, my extended family were Nebraskans. Oh, yeah? But my dad was recruited by the government uh, and went to MIT, got, a, got his degree in uh, physics, and then was sent to California to work for the Department of the Army. He got out there in late 42, early 43. My mom joined him not long after there and we spent the rest of our lives in Sacramento. Did you really? Yeah. So did you play some sports growing up? I did. Uh, from a little kid, I just enjoyed being outside. I, yeah. I loved being involved in competitive sports. If I wasn't playing basketball, I was playing baseball. If I wasn't right. playing baseball, I was learning to throw a fullet, uh, excuse me, uh, football. Um, Soccer wasn't very big. Right, it wasn't back, big in those days. Then. Yeah, it was uh, basketball season, football, and, and you're all in. Whatever yeah. season it was in, it's like nothing else existed, right? Exactly. And then as things went along, you got into organized sports like yeah. Little League. Right. And I loved baseball. I, and yeah. I, it turned out I had a natural affinity for baseball. Uh -huh. I was good at football. I was good at basketball. But I was naturally gifted in baseball. Uh, so as things went along from Little League, you go into Pony League and then right, the, to right. the Babe Ruth League. Uh, and when high school came, I, I was, my brothers and my sisters, my neighbors all went to a, a, a high school called El Camino High School. Yeah. It was there. It was the established high school. They were, I was a baby boomer right at the beginning flooding tide of right, baby boomers. Right. And uh, they, uh, for, uh, they built a new school. It was called Encina. Mm -hmm. And uh, for one year, they took the little place where I lived called Arden Park. It's about a one-mile square housing area and sent us to Encina. Mm -hmm. So inside households, your brothers were going to one high school and you were going to another yeah. or your sisters and your neighbors were on teams opposite you, right, but you lived right. right next door to one another. Both the kids that were one year younger than you and the one year older. It was the ultimate, ultimate rivalry. <laughs> And uh, but I received a letter because it was a new school. Uh, we only had three classes. We had the freshman class, sophomore class, and junior class. Uh, and we were the little guys on the block, and we got kicked around by right, everybody. Right. But they they were really pretty thoughtful. They sent out letters inviting me to try out for the football team, the basketball team, and the baseball team. And of course, I did. I got my letter, and I went and tried out. And naturally, over time, I was a freshman, and uh, I had. Good running skills. I was I wanted to be a running back, mm -hmm. but I had great hands, and and so they made me a receiver, and uh, so my freshman year I played uh, wide receiver and defensive back, um, but my sophomore year uh, 
after the first game, I was a wide receiver again. Um, I was, after the first game at lunchtime, the coach called me over and said, John, we're moving you to quarterback. I said, I don't want to be a quarterback. He said, that's okay. Uh, you can either sit on the bench or play quarterback. Yeah, you got an option, right? Um, my guest is General John Goodman. Um, we're going to find out about sports, but in his military life and career, which has been outstanding. Stay tuned to Koinonia. This is Mark Buckley. We'll be right back after these messages. Good afternoon, beloved Tom Brown on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. This is Koinonia. This is Community. Pastor Greg Laurie is going to be speaking at 1030 this Thursday morning at the University of Phoenix Stadium, and your church leaders are invited. Tell your pastor about this opportunity to hear Greg Laurie announce plans for the upcoming Harvest America that's coming to Phoenix next June. Pastors, church leaders, community leaders, all of you can RSVP for this Thursday by going to rsvp.harvestamerica.com. Again, that's rsvp.harvestamerica.com. Welcome back to Koinonia. This is Mark Buckley, and with me in the studio is General John Goodman. Uh, General Goodman, you uh, started not as a military man, but as a sports lover, just like many of us did growing up in the 50s and the 60s in California. I was there myself in Marin County, where we thought we were cooler than everybody in the world. Um, so uh, you, you had a great opportunity to play because you weren't in a school where all the positions were already taken by older kids. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a very unique opportunity. It was a very unique time in our country's history. Mm -hmm. uh, when I look back as a kid, the opportunities we had uh, the life we were able to live was extraordinary. If you if you grew up like I grew up in California, you're you checked out of your house in the morning and you came home by dark, you know, and you told your parents if you weren't going to be home for dinner, and uh, but you didn't worry about the bad guys, you know. You were told once in kindergarten, don't talk to strangers, and then you're pretty much good to go for the rest of your yep, that life. That was the instruction for <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah. Don't talk to strangers. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, and uh, there was, a, in our house, there was a blue dark and a black dark. Uh -huh. You're home by blue dark, and if it gets black dark, you're in trouble. Yeah, right. <laughs> So um, you you wrapped up your high school career. You had a great high school career and played a lot of sports. And then how did you choose ASU? Um, I'm a USC guy. I was mm -hmm. I watched them every weekend on television. Uh, I wanted to go to USC. I was recruited by USC. I was lucky enough to be recruited by quite a number of schools, mm -hmm. all of the Pac-12 schools. As a quarterback. As a quarterback. Mm -hmm. um, you had a good arm, huh? I had a good arm. I was uh, also a pitcher in baseball, mm -hmm. and I wanted to go to a school that had a really competitive football team and a very competitive baseball yeah. team. Uh, and ra at the time, USC just had won the Rose Bowl in 1963. They were the national championship team. John McKay was there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the two senior quarterbacks were leaving, Nelson and Bethard. Mm -hmm. They were leaving... And McKay recruited me to take over as a sophomore. Back then, you freshmen couldn't play right, right. the first year. Uh, and their baseball coach recruited me as well. 
Uh, and their baseball team had gone to the College World Series. They didn't win. Um, and I, the, the last week before signing the letter of intent, mm-hmm. uh, McKay came and visited me on a Tuesday, spent about a half hour, talked to my mom and dad for a couple of minutes, talked to me for 15 or 20 minutes, and kind of laid out what the school was like right. and what they wanted from me and where he felt I was going to be you know, as a sophomore. On Thursday, this guy got an appointment to see me. His name was Frank Cush. And uh, he came to my house. I didn't know anything about Arizona. I didn't even know Arizona was a state, let alone this yeah. thing called Tempe, whatever that is. Uh-huh. Um, but there he was in my living room, and he came in and introduced himself and sat down and talked to me for five minutes about football and about my responsibilities if I came down mm-hmm. there and what, what he had in mind for me as a player. Turned to talk to my parents for about an hour about building young men and men of character. Mm-hmm. Guess where my mom wanted me to go to school? Really? Guess where I went to school? Wow. Uh, and by the way, uh, Bobby Winkles was the baseball coach, and I played mm-hmm. baseball also at Arizona so State. So you, uh, you were a two-sport athlete at Arizona State. How did that affect your studies and all? Uh, it was challenging. It mm-hmm. really was. Uh, I was probably the best C student that ever <laughs> lived. But Cush had a rule. He said, uh, you will go to class mm-hmm. and you will get C's. Yeah. I accomplished that. <laughs> he, lived he said B's. To... I'd have gotten B's, but he said C's. <laughs> what was it like to uh, play for Frank Cush in the heyday of his uh, coaching career? Yeah, you learned first and foremost, life and football is about character. Yeah. And if you didn't do what you were supposed to do when you were supposed to do it, it was a character flaw. Mm-hmm. And you paid for that, yeah, painfully paid for that. Well, in those days, I mean, even when I played high school football, our coaches would punch guys if they were in acting uh, out of line, you know? No, there wasn't any. I was never physically assaulted or, or intimidated mm-hmm. on a football, other than by other players. Yeah. We'd get mad at one another. No, no, Frank, Frank was very straightforward, mm-hmm. you know. It started with, you're a jackass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you did, if you right. mental mistakes, physical mistakes, you know, he'd take you off to the side, work with you, yeah. get, get you. But mental mistakes were non-tolerable. Yeah. And you better be able to hit. Right. At Arizona State back then, it was you're coming to our land and you're going to get punished. Mm-hmm. That, which meant your quarterback had to be tough. Yeah. So my first uh, spring football, I played quarterback on offense, and I was a linebacker on defense. You're kidding. To prove that I was tough enough to be on that team. Wow. Yeah. So when did you start getting some playing time at ASU? Sophomore. As your, yeah. as a, were you a starter? <clears throat> I wasn't. Uh, we had uh, uh, um, a senior, John Torek, who mm-hmm. was a very good quarterback. Um, I ran better than him. Uh, I probably had a little better arm than him, but I was – Three, three years younger. Yeah. Uh, I beat him out in camp. I actually became the first-string quarterback in camp. But Cush called me into his office and said, I'm going to go with the senior, and uh, you're going to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough to play mostly throughout the season. That was the last year of the, I don't know, remember what it was, but today we play what all of us older people know is platoon football, right. where you trade out entire teams. Right. Back then, if the ball turned over, you could substitute three people. And then on any other play, you could substitute two people. Mm-hmm. So the 11 you had on the field, at least uh, nine of those, or eight of those were going to stay on the field. Wow, I didn't even realize So that. I played uh, defensive safety, mm-hmm. uh, and I then I started 
the the series every year, every every time there was a turnover. And by your senior year, you guys did pretty well, didn't you? Yeah, we did well in our soft my sophomore year mm-hmm. too. Uh, my <laughs> my first game was pretty interesting. <laughs> Um, but the first pass I threw at Arizona State was for a touchdown, and my last pass that I threw at Arizona State was for a touchdown. And I was thrilled with both of those. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. And you guys beat U of A on your last pass, right? We did. Uh, it was late in the game, and uh, we got the ball, and I turned to Cush and said, don't worry, we're going to score. And I started drawing plays in uh-huh. the huddle, seriously, because they saw what they were doing that gave us weaknesses. Yeah. And the plays that we had been running were right into their strengths. And so I designed a series of plays in the huddle, do this, do that, to the wide receivers, threw the ball every play, went down the field, and then moved things around and put West West Plummer on the left side and said, run straight up the field, go to that goal line, that ball be there. And I threw the ball. uh, My center, Bob Luke, his brother was Bill Luke. Bill was playing defensive end, and he came through clean. So I turned and threw the ball for the for the goal line, and he leveled me. Wow. Uh, but West Palmer the got game. there, and sure enough, it was a touchdown. Congratulations. So how did you choose to go into the military after your career at ASU? Yeah, Hollywood wrote this script. Uh, I went to take my last final. Remember, C's make degrees, and Chris right. said you're going to get C's. So I went to take my last final. I was living in the dorm. Uh, walked down, took the final, came back, turned my little three-digit combination on my uh, mailbox, and I got a letter, and it said, greetings from the President of the United States. Wow. And they really get those letters, and you really go. You were drafted. I was a draftee. Um, so I reported less What year was this, 65? 67. 67, and the, when Vietnam was just really cranking up. It was. Uh and in 1967, uh, I entered the military on June 20, 28, 1967. Uh, went through boot camp, went through advanced infantry training down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Now, you were in the Marine Corps. Nope, I was, oh, an, I was oh, a soldier. A soldier in the Army. Yep. So how did that compare the, the boot camp to the kind of football camps you had been used to? Wasn't it, well, we were learning different skills, but it wasn't physically as tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, it wasn't 100 and... 15 right. degrees, and you weren't in long sleeve shirts back and then. And pads, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, everything they asked me to do because of my football, basketball, and baseball mm-hmm. experience, there wasn't anything I couldn't do physically. I was used to thinking on my feet, so there wasn't anything they were asking me to do mentally that challenged me really to any degree. It was, but it was interesting training, fascinating. And back then, it was still Patton's Army. Yeah. When you trained, you were training to be a soldier in the United States Army, the one that won World War II. Yeah. And uh, and training was tough. And some of the uh, commanders actually had been in World War II in those days. Some right? of them had been. In fact, I served under uh, General Abrams, mm-hmm. who was the Fourth Tank Division uh, Task Force Bravo Combat. Command Bravo, yeah. a commander who went in and relieved Bastogne under George Patton. Wow. So, and they named the Abrams tank the most powerful did. battle uh, wagon on the earth to this day. Yep. Um, so you initially were drafted. You didn't expect to necessarily stay that long. No. What began to change in your heart? When, did you get sent to Vietnam right away? Uh, not right away. I went through training. First of all, when you enter the Army back then, you went into this massive room with thousands of people, mm-hmm. took a battery of tests, 
At the end of the test, there were three of us who said, you're staying in the room. Mm -hmm. Since I had completed college, I was one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> they said, you're going to take, you're going to go to OCS and get a commission. And they laid out how it was going to happen. I was going to complete basic training, wait until the next OCS class, and then go. I said, well, what, what MOS is, what occupational fields do you have open? And they said, infantry. I said, but I don't want to be an infantry. What about armor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not open. <laughs> so you can be infantry you or you can be infantry. infantry. Yeah. And I said, yeah, well, all right. The timeline when they laid it out, it mm -hmm. would be, I'd be about seven months to get into training and six months in OCS mm -hmm. down in Fort Benning, Georgia. So I would spend three years and one month in the armed forces. Or I could stay an enlisted man and serve two years. And well, maybe get killed. Well, either way, you're, yeah. you might get killed. But I had already signed with the New Orleans Saints. I was a quarterback with the New Orleans Saints, and I wanted to play at New Orleans. Three years versus two years. I took the two-year option. Really? Yeah. Oh, stay tuned. My guest is General John Goodman. Uh, we're finding out about his career in the military now, and uh, it's a fascinating career. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. We'll be right back. Koinonia is an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. Koinonia, Christian fellowship, communion with God and with fellow Christians. This is Koinonia. This is community. I am Tom Brown, and your host today is Mark Buckley. We'll get back to him in just a second. Shonda Pierce, the Happily Laughter After Tour with special guest Karen Williams, coming to the Valley a week from Thursday at Highlands Church, October 13th. Tickets still available. Group rates, all of that. Go to faithtalk1360.com, faithtalk1360.com. Welcome back to Koinonia. This is Mark Buckley, and I'm interviewing General John Goodman, and uh, we're finding out about his military career, and then we're going to find out about what he would recommend the U.S. do in some hot spots around the world. Um, General Goodman, you went into the infantry. I did. I, I went. I was sent from basic training, which was at Fort Lewis, Washington, to Fort Polk, Louisiana, to advanced infantry training. And back then, that was the training brigade that prepared you to go to Vietnam. So everything we did there was preparing me to go fight in the jungles in Vietnam. And how did that go? I mean, how did you? How quick did you end up in Vietnam? Uh, well, I spent nine weeks uh, in uh, advanced infantry training. Then I was sent to uh, Armored Infantry School mm -hmm. to learn about the use of armor in support of infantry. Uh, and then I got to spend Christmas at home and shipped out on January 4th, 1968. And what was happening in Vietnam when you arrived? There was a very large buildup. Uh, the first month were normal, whatever normal means, combat operations. Uh, I was assigned to the 2nd Battalion, 18th Infantry of the Big Red One. And what was your rank? I was a Private E-2. All right. In the United States Army. Uh, 
And at the end of um, <clears throat> our first month, um, we were, I could see that what we were doing was having a decided effect. Mm -hmm. They initiated a new program called the Village Pacification Program. Um, I was moved to a reconnaissance unit out of the infantry battalion. Um, <clears throat> and that reconnaissance unit uh, was going out and working and formulating the concepts for each village mm -hmm. before we went in. Uh, and we were attempting to pacify first win, mm -hmm. go in and fight and win the village, then hold through mm -hmm. a pacification program and start rebuilding. Um, so, uh, Were you in hand-to-hand -hand combat in those days? Uh, no. Uh, reconnaissance, if you get caught, you're in trouble. Yeah. So we went in um, generally, but it was tactical reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. uh, and generally we went in um, under the cover of darkness, mm -hmm. worked, and then pulled ourselves out. Did you use interpreters to talk to the people? Uh, we didn't talk to people. We didn't want to be there. We were invisible. Okay, you were just sneaking in, seeing what was going on. Right. All three of us. <laughs> um then uh, in uh, late uh, February, a thing called Tet Offensive occurred. Right. Uh, a now, major offensive led by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Right. Uh, it, over the course of that, um, I was, uh, because I was out and assigned, working with the battalion, at, mm -hmm. at uh, the morning I came back in and stayed in their night defensive perimeter. Mm -hmm. So it was a, I was working with a rifle company. Um, and we were north of a place called Quan Loi, which was a major northern artillery fire position of, uh, of the 1st Infantry Division. So we weren't really far from what they call the Parrot's Peak. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, that evening, um, just before dark, uh, we started getting a lot of infiltrating fire into the defensive position. I was getting ready to go out on patrol. They made the decision to keep us in. By midnight, we were being attacked, um, and we were. It was time. clear, you could walk on the green tracers coming at you, and the red tracers going back were going back just as fast. Mm -hmm. um, so we spent the night fighting off what turned out to be the bulk size of a uh, North Korean division. Um, we they but they were in such a hurry. Luckily. When they went through our night defensive paper and were walking through our, our fire positions, they were in such a hurry, uh, they didn't bother wiping us out. You're kidding. So they overran you guys. They overran us. Uh, one of us, I was in a two-man fighting position. One of us was shooting where they came from, and the other one was shooting where they are. How, f how close did guys actually walk by you? Uh, within feet. Are you kidding? Well, most of them didn't make it much further than that. Yeah. But... But it was a heck of a fight. It really was. Mm -hmm. um, and the next morning, we cleaned up and loaded our body bags into the helicopters. How many guys did you lose? Too many. A whole bunch, huh? Yeah. It's brutal, isn't it? I mean, most soldiers don't really like talking about the reality of combat because it is very, very horrible, isn't it? There are, um, you know, when you, you go through life, um, you get to a point where you've seen things you nobody should ever see mm -hmm. and you've lived through experiences nobody should have to be able to be required to live through and it's not hard to talk about it although i guess technically it is hard to talk about it you try to put that in a little place in your mind and seal it off yeah uh because life is good and the opportunity to live and be part of a, right. a community and the most incredible country in the world mm -hmm. um 
You don't want to give that up worrying about what happened before. Right. I had World War II veterans living next door to me mm-hmm. uh, who talked to me for the better part of one day just before I shipped out to go to Vietnam and talked to me about everything from before you go into combat, when you're in combat, when you come out, what to expect, emotional things. What are was, some of the best pieces of advice you got? One of the most important things he told me was, you have an incredible life. It's going to be on your mind all the time. Mm-hmm. The second you get near the enemy, you're ready to go out on patrol, you're moving to contact, put that in a box and seal it away. It doesn't exist. Give your life up. Concentrate on the mission. Focus on your responsibilities. Take care of the man next to you. And if life ever starts again after that battle, think about it then. So you really put your life on hold for every time you go out on patrol. And every time you come back, you thank God, and then you start life again. Yeah. It is. Um, I, I'm a hunter, and I was a hunter as a kid. And when I contemplated Vietnam, I was a couple of years younger than you, so that I ended up having a, a draft deferment uh, number. Or, a, you know, they did a lottery, and I had right. ended up yeah. with a number in the 300s by the grace of God. But... Uh, I knew that combat would be very, very brutal. Anybody who hunts and has had kill game knows that to contemplate killing people is something that you wouldn't wish on anybody. No. Um, no, it isn't. Uh, the, you're trained. Uh, you know what to do. You know how to do it. And it, you get to a, you know, there's three types of courage. Mm-hmm. Everybody understands and thinks physical courage is the most important of the bunch. It's the least important. Uh, then there's mental courage. Uh, and then there's moral courage. Mm-hmm. Um, when the green tracers are going supersonic, cracking by your ears, and your face is buried in the mud, but if you don't raise up and return fire, the guy next to you is going to die, it, that's a moral check. Yeah. And you have a responsibility, and it's yours. You raise your head and you return fire. Yeah. Um, How many different firefights did you end up getting in over those years? Well, I was in a few to start Mm. with because I was attached. But then they, the first division was forming. Well, actually, MACV, Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, was forming more Ranger battalions, and I was pulled from my little reconnaissance platoon and put in a, a Ranger battalion. And I was assigned to a ranger company. So Which, I, and th- those are the, the they're the, n- where everybody's familiar with the Navy SEALs. That's the Army's version of the Navy SEALs, Actually, right? no. Uh, Special Operations Forces, they pull most of their uh, recruits for Special Operations Forces out of the rangers. The rangers are, they can operate as battalion. They're designed mm-hmm. to go places and do things that normal infantry units are not trained to do. Mm-hmm. So they have specialty training. And then they can they task organize themselves into small, back then they called them LERP teams, long-range reconnaissance teams, five-man teams, that went to countries where we didn't have people and looked at things that we didn't acknowledge exist mm-hmm. and helped the theater commander, General Westmoreland and General Abrams, formulate their decisions in the well as of the division commanders in the, that were operating in the core area that you were operating in. So I was assigned to one of those teams, and because I was a little older, a little more experienced, they made me a team leader, and they promoted me to spec four, spec. specialist fourth class. So you were only initially supposed to go in for two years. What happened? How did you end up making a career out of it? That was uh, 
Well, that was only three months into my tour in Vietnam. Uh-huh. And for the rest of my 15 months in Vietnam, I served as a, uh, as a reconnaissance team leader. And so you were going out on patrols and seeing what was going on. Right. And sometimes you were uh, tied in trees um, in countries where we didn't have reconnaissance patrol teams, and you were calling in airstrikes at 2 and 3 in the morning against enemy known positions that you'd you'd looked at. So how did you handle the sleep deprivation in those kind of situations? Well, when you went into the tree, you knew you were tired, so you tied yourself in. So if you fell asleep, you'd stay there. Did you ever fall asleep in that situation? I've slept in trees a lot. Wow. Um, and weren't the bugs pretty bad, too, and the humidity? and Yes, but what the... you did is, uh, is you would put your mind into a position where if you were in a tree, you close your eyes and you say, I'm above the bugs. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you go to sleep. And uh, if you were on the ground, you would get below the weeds and you say, they can't find me below the weeds. <laughs> and you'd go to sleep. You wake up with a few bites, though. You'd regardless. wake up with a few bites, but you'd wake up. Yeah, that's the good news. So tell us how you ended up uh, staying. You Did you have to re-enlist? Did they come to you and say, we want to put you in officer candidate school now? Or no, uh, I finished my tour in Vietnam uh, when I got finished. I had less than, I think, 30 days or 60 mm-hmm. days left in the Army. So on January 29th, two days after coming off the patrol, um, I got on an airplane, a Boeing 707, and flew home and went to Oakland, California and was discharged from the Army mm-hmm. with an honorable discharge at the rank of sergeant. I was thrilled to be a sergeant. And thrilled to be alive and not wounded. Or thrilled anything. to be alive. Well, actually, I, I, I was wounded. In, in what way? Uh, it was one of those unspeakable deals. We were on patrol in a country where we weren't on patrol. Mm-hmm. And uh, walked, the point man walked in and tripped a wire. We hit a booby trap. The size of the booby trap was probably about the size of a 105 howitzer round. Mm-hmm. And the five-man team was pretty much cut to pieces. My guest is General John Goodman. He's paid a major price for serving our country, and we're going to find out some of the things he thinks and feels about our current situation in just a moment. I'm Mark Buckley from Living Streams Church. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I am Tom Brown. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget that Focus on the Family's Kingdom Citizen Collection is available online at faithtalk1360.com. It includes the new book from Dr. Tony Evans, Kingdom Citizen, an introductory subscription to Citizen Magazine, a CD of the program, and your family's election activity kit. Get it now, faithtalk1360.com. This is Koinonia, this is Community, and this is your host, Mark Buckley. Welcome back. I'm Mark Buckley, and my guest is General John Goodman. Um, General Goodman, you 
were in Vietnam, um, you got out alive by the grace of God, and if you were to have talked to our president back then, what would you have told him to do in terms of foreign policy and, and, and winding that down or doing it different? Uh, even from a private E2 perspective when I first got in country all the way until I left, and for the many years after that, it was very clear to me that we, our national security strategy had not been taken down to a, a, a theater strategy that was linked to um, the in-country strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and it was apparent to those of us who were serving, 500 or 600,000 of us that were serving in Vietnam at the time, we didn't have the political will, which means we didn't have the will of the American people to stay the course and do what needs to be done. Uh, there are certain strategic decisions that our country has made um, throughout its mm -hmm. history. Um, and there are kind of three factors that matter when we, have the when, we, when we make a strategic decision about a country, whether the country is South Vietnam, South Korea, uh, Germany, Japan, Italy, it really doesn't matter. Pick it. Um, if we don't have the political will to put our armed forces in there and support them with the other three elements of national power, diplomatic, informational, and economic, in ways that make sense, and know that you're in there for the long haul, and then make the political commitment to stay the course, mm -hmm. um, then don't put our young men and women in harm's way. Yeah. Because um, we're not fooling around. We can't, we can't, can't afford to go halfway. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's this thing called limited war. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the term, the police action in Korea, et cetera, et cetera. That makes sense strategically. It makes sense at the theater level. Uh, when you close with and are required to destroy the enemy, it is as violent as total war. Right. And we need to make sure that we don't limit the number of troops assigned to do the tasks that they're assigned to do because you're just killing more troops and taking more time, which means more troops are going to get killed. Right. We need to give them the tools to do the job so that we can tactically overmatch mm -hmm. and destroy the enemy at hand in a limited way, appropriately, to accomplish the mission. Yeah. Uh, we don't understand that as a country, and our leaders don't understand that, that limited war to them still means all-out war to the individual soldier, the individual Marine. Yeah, and you've got to give them everything they need if they're going to be successful. Um, how? Okay, real quick, how did you end up becoming a general after getting out of Vietnam and getting out of the service? I went and played football for New Orleans, got hurt, um, detached my left clavicle, mm -hmm. um, went to work for a uh, company um, for a couple of years, well, a year and a half, and at the end of that, I said, I, I cannot do this. I, I, I can't believe that I'm thinking about money. Mm -hmm. uh, life isn't about money. Um, so I went down and started to join the FBI. I had a degree in accounting, and I said, why not? The FBI. Yeah. Saw the sign out front that said, the Marines are looking for a few good men to fly the Phantom. I had always wanted to fly and joined. My wife could have killed me because <laughs> she just got me back from Vietnam two years earlier. Uh, Went to flight school, graduated from flight school, became an A-4 pilot, mm -hmm. uh, flew tactical jets uh, for the better part of 38 years, uh, got over 4,100 tactical hours flying the A-4, the F-4, and then the F-18 for my last, uh, I don't know, 2,200, 2,400 hours, my last 
10 to 12. So you got back years. into combat, though, but from a different perspective. I huh? did. Well, I, I went into combat. I flew into combat once. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every time I was sent to combat, and I've been there four times, mm-hmm. uh, I was on the ground. Like in Desert Storm, mm-hmm. I was uh, in war. At the time, I was in war college. And I was pulled out of my war college class, and I was sent over to join uh, the commanding general of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force in the Gulf and became their head of plans, combat plans. So I'm going to jump right to the present day. If you were going to advise the president about a strategy in terms of dealing with ISIS right now, what would you say? Okay, well, first, we need to make the decision based on... um, is this about um, our way of life? Mm-hmm. We made the decision in the 1940s that communism was attempting to destroy our way of life. If we believe radicalism, another ism of my lifetime, mm-hmm. the third, I think, uh, that radicalism is attempting to destroy our way of life, then we need to commit the American people and we need to have the diplomatic and, and political will Tell the American people we're going to war for our way of life. Yeah, and then go all out rather than half out. And then develop a long-range strategy by theater. Mm-hmm. So in South Asia, what, what's, everybody goes, what are we still in Afghanistan for? Well, we went into Afghanistan for a very clear short-term mm-hmm. objective. But pa- Pakistan, if those of you who studied it, are considered to be the cradle of this problem. Mm-hmm. We need beacons of bright, shining hope somewhere between Lebanon and Mindanao, mm-hmm. where the big, large caliphate is supposed to ultimately go. And we need to fold that in on the, the bedrock of the problem, the cradle of the problem, by creating sh- beacons of shining hope, mm-hmm. places where the people can actually see there is a possibility of a better way of life. Mm-hmm. They can take care of their children. They can. They will not have their souls subjugated by somebody who says, you can't think that, you can't do that, yeah. and you're going to do it this way. Well, let your daughters be educated, et cetera. Huh? Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether you want to get into a discussion about Iraq or Afghanistan or, or et cetera, et cetera, we need to understand there are three things that the United States needs to commit in order to be successful in these types of reconstruction, whatever what you want to call them. Number one, you must commit the United States military. Mm-hmm. Number two, you must develop, you must commit economic development in a thoughtful way, not just throw money at the problem, mm-hmm. but in a very thoughtful way. And number three, you must have the political will to stay the course. We had the political will to stay the course in Germany. We had the political will to stay the course in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you know this, we have more troops in Korea today, 28,500, than we have in Afghanistan where there's an active combat situation right. going on. Um, and at the time of that war ended, and today, were we to go, were the armistice to be broken again and we go back to active combat in Korea, uh, the United States has combat control, operational control of all Korean forces on the peninsula. We fight both countries' armed forces. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the political will, we have the political will to do what needs to be done. If we're going to commit our young men and women, our brothers, our sisters, our moms and dads, then we need to, as a people, 
stand up and say, we're committing them and here's what we're going to accomplish. Have the leadership courage, the moral courage, to say what we're actually trying to accomplish and then do it. So you've um, been very much involved in also, I would imagine, some of the at least discussions regarding budgets for the military, right? How, how frustrating is it for you when the military says, okay, we know we have a limited amount of money. We're going to, we're going to eliminate this particular fighting, you know, this weapon. And then Congress comes and says, no, because it's manufactured in my district, we're going to keep it. Uh, what does that do to the morale of the generals? Well, it's, it's the morale of uh, life and life in the military is not about generals. Mm-hmm. Uh, having been a private E1, having cleaned the barracks floor, having gone and, and mm-hmm. worked in the scullery and the kitchen and all those other things, every decision I ever made was based upon what's it going to mean to the private? What's it going to mean to the Lance Corporal, mm-hmm. the guys that have to do this? Uh, now, clearly, you have to make the, the mission comes first, but the tools, how you use the tools, varies. And so what you're thinking about is if we have to eliminate this capability uh, or if we have to maintain it, what's it mean to the combat effectiveness, mm-hmm. the combat capability of these young men and women? Yeah. What's it going to mean to them if we have to go to war and they're stuck fighting this It's no longer relevant on the battlefield? Or they're stuck with not enough tools to do the job they need to do mm-hmm. because we've not funded them uh, appropriately to have the combat readiness and the combat tools they need to do their job we're asking them to do. Um, what do you think about the changes in the military that have occurred in your lifetime in terms of women soldiers, uh, don't ask, don't tell, to openly gay soldiers? How, how has that affected morale? Well, it, there is an effect. Uh, every young man and woman, uh, they, don't, they don't live in isolation in the armed forces of the United States. I mean, that, the big myth is you're in the military and you're isolated. Just the opposite. They all grew up in small towns and towns and cities around the United States. They are a product of our society. Uh, and when we're asking them to do things that instinctively they have been taught from the time they were little kids not to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's challenging. Um, but, you know, if it's a lawful order, you have, the res- you have two choices. You can either execute it or you can resign, Yeah, and particularly as an officer and a general officer particularly. So you try to look at what is best for the private, for the combat capability of the country, should I try to manage this and get it done in the best mm-hmm. way possible? Uh, because what you don't want to do is put somebody who's not qualified, isn't physically capable. Not only will they get themselves killed, but the guy walking on patrol next to him, he's going to die too. Yeah, they're, and they're all vulnerable. They are. And, uh, you know, you live, you fight. Uh, and the most important thing you have to do is make sure the man next to you on patrol, you take care of him. My guest is General John Goodman, and we're going to be right back to wrap up this interview. I'm going to be, I'm Mark Buckley, Living Streams Church, and uh, I'm glad that you've been with us today. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Buckley from Living Streams. If you ever want to visit us at Living Streams, we're at Central and Glendale. You can look us up on the web, livingstreams.org. My guest is General John Goodman. Uh, General Goodman, as we conclude the program, why are Iraq and Afghanistan continuing to be so important in terms of our future and our role in the world? Both of those countries have a possibility of being another moderate Muslim uh, nations. Um, we have committed the esteem, the prestige, and the, the political credibility of the United States. Um, they're the most likely events that are occurring now along with uh, our fight against uh, terrorism. And we can stay the course and we can ensure that those countries can move forward in a way that makes sense, that can support a livable uh, international uh, approach to problem solving and can be a friend and an ally of the United States. Um, they're most likely. If we're not successful in most likely, imagine what we're going to do to our adversaries that are most dangerous. Let's call them China. Let's call them Russia. Let's call them Iran and throw in the little kid, North Korea. Mm-hmm. What are they going to take from that? But we don't have the political will to do what needs to be done. Uh, we won the Cold War because we showed the political will, mm-hmm. that we were willing to go the last mile to achieve what needed to be done so that humanity had a possibility of a better way of life. That hasn't changed. There is a threat to our way of life and to the way of life of our friends, allies, and most importantly, our partners. Uh, if we don't do what needs to be done, this, this earth as we know it is going to be modified markedly and not in a positive way for our country. Thank you very much, General Goodman. I sure appreciate you being with us today. I'm glad that you've been able to listen to this program. I hope you'll be praying for our country. I pray that God will give us wise and righteous leaders because we're going to need people of great character if we're going to have a great future. I'm Mark Buckley. If you want to visit us at Living Streams, we're on Central and Glendale. You can meet any time with us, Sunday morning, 9.15 or 11. We'd love to have you drop by. Look us up on the web at livingstreams.org. God bless. Thank you.